Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Francie Matthews. After earning degrees from Princeton and Stanford, she served as an intelligence analyst in the CIA. Francine authored her first novel in 1992 and left the agency a year later. She has since written over 30 books, including the New York Times bestseller Jack 1939, Too Bad to Die, and That Churchill Woman. Francine is also the author of the long-running Mary Folger series and, writing as Stephanie Barron, The Jane Austen Mysteries. Was there even a moment when you first fell in love with your craft and thought, man, I'm going to do this uh, and, and I want to do this as long as I can? You know, Jim, I actually believe fundamentally, and I've always believed, uh, that writers are born. They mm-hmm. aren't made. They aren't people who come to a decision to write. So I have always been somebody who processed my experience in living uh, through words. And um, I think that begins for writers uh, with reading and the importance of reading in our lives. But it revolves really about around storytelling and the vital aspect of storytelling throughout human history to instruct people how to live by giving them examples of, of what other people have endured, how they've problem solved, how they have survived. I know that when I had children, I have two boys uh, who are in their 20s, I suddenly felt viscerally the importance of storytelling in their lives developmentally, just just as they began to navigate the world, reading became their map of of how to be human. Um, So I, I find storytelling, first and foremost, critical. And I say that because I find too often people get hung up on formatting, you know, like, oh, you're reading digitally. Oh, you're listening. You're only listening to the audio book. Um, and I think that that's kind of misguided. I think that storytelling, humanly speaking, began with oral history and with tales told around a fire. And so I, I just really value the importance of that in people's lives but I am not wedded to the whole notion of, of one format being of primary importance. That said, as somebody who loves words, I think cognitively I'm wired to just process experience verbally. I can't sing. I can't draw a line. You know, so my particular brain accesses the world and understands it through words. And I would say I began life, you know, writing letters um, because I have five older sisters. 
Uh, so letter writing was something that was part of my whole world. I kept a journal obsessively when I was an adolescent and a teen. Um, when I got to college, I started writing poetry because I, I was intimidated by the, the fiction, the not the uh, creative writing program at my my school, which was Princeton. And the people who taught creative writing at Princeton, you know, were people like Toni Morrison and Joyce Carol Oates. And it was just, you had a, it was a jury class. So you had to submit your fiction and be accepted into the class. And I found that traumatizing. So I probably started writing fiction when I was a freshman in high school. Um, but I didn't actually view myself as a writer. And part of that was uh, I was afraid of failing. I, I saw fiction at that time as an art that was granted by the muse to a certain extent. And if you risked putting your art into the world and were told it failed, then that would be a dream of mine that died. So I just avoided doing it altogether. I did journalism. I was an editor of the Daily Princetonian and then worked for the Miami Herald briefly as an intern and then went to grad school in California and interned for the San Jose Mercury News and then became a freelancer for them for the three years I was in graduate school. Um, and then I joined the CIA as an intelligence analyst and the writing at the CIA as an analyst sort of combines the best of both worlds. It's academic writing, which I was doing in graduate school, long-term papers that are heavily researched um, and short-term journalistic pieces that go into the president's daily brief or the National Intelligence Daily. And those pieces are rapid turnaround, deadline focused, um, have to have tight organization. And your managers are your editors. So I've always been in an environment professionally where I've had a dialogue with people who are massaging my prose and making the final product better than I could do it myself. So I take to editing really well. I find it vital. I think that I can tell at a glance when I'm reading if a book has had that kind of dialogue with an editor. Um, so I, at 29, I was at the CIA still. I happened to walk into a mystery bookstore and looked around the bookshelves and thought, you know, this isn't art. <laughs> it doesn't have to be art. I don't have to be F. Scott Fitzgerald. I, I could be Elizabeth George. Um, I could be someone who is writing entertainment rather than art, but entertainment of a very high quality. And that was, that was my goal suddenly at 29. I thought, you know what? I can do that. I can get my arms around it. If this is a business, which I was suddenly realizing it was, I can venture into this business. So it was at 29 that I sat down and wrote my first mystery novel, which was called Death in the Off Season. And it's the first of a series of books set on Nantucket Island. Um, featuring a female cop named Meredith Folger. And I'm still writing that series, although there was a hiatus of 20 years in the series. Um, to, uh, at that point, to your question, I consciously made a step to write a novel. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to use the mystery format because I had grown up reading mystery fiction. I adored it. And I wanted to have that architecture to model for a first novel attempt. Um, the puzzle plot, if you're a high analytic, as I am cognitively, 
provides a structure for a, a roadmap, as it were, through through the novel form. And I felt that was something I could pick apart by reading books I admired and then reconstruct for myself uh, how you how you create a puzzle plot. Um, but it also was important to me to pin on that sort of underlying architecture, the psychological progression and growth of individual characters. So that's why I began with mystery. Um, and eventually my, you know, work at the CIA led me to kind of play with, with espionage novels as well. I love something you said earlier on that it, there was this fear factor, there was this intimidation factor for a long time around fiction for you. Um, mentally, did you have to make a leap to telling yourself this risk is an acceptable risk and I'm just going to try it? If it fails, then so be it. Uh, maybe other people's definition of failure is different or success is different than mine. What was that mental progression? you know, kind of risk, risk averse to risk taking. Um, what was that? What how, can you talk us through that, that kind of occurred? Sure. I, I think that for me, it was important to diminish the level of risk. So that's, that's why I pinpointed um, acknowledging to myself that I didn't have to attempt art. I could attempt entertainment and entertainment felt realizable for me, I think because I had spent enough time writing uh, newspaper articles and long pieces for, for Sunday magazines and that kind of thing. I understood how to uh, write a longer paced fiction. Um, in fact, my real challenge as a writer is short fiction. I find when people request a short story submission for an anthology, it's just, so difficult for me because I tend to think in scenes. And uh, when I write a novel, I'm pinning one scene after another scene after another scene. And it's very difficult to do that in short fiction. You're essentially trying to master in a very elevated way, a single almost scene um, in a short story. So that's been challenging for me. Um, but I do think that diminishing risk is important when you wanna attempt anything new. Uh, what I found when I wrote my first book is that all of my experience in writing previously did not really um, apply <laughs> because I had been writing nonfiction. And nonfiction for me is very linear as a process. It's, it's very left-brained. Uh, it's about organization of fact. Whereas the creative writing process almost taps into an entirely different section of my mind. And it was only when my characters started talking to one another that to me, the book came to life and they took over the plotting that I had done in a very cerebral way on paper. Um, and I, I often equate it, Phil, to the difference between an architectural blueprint and an actual house. That the, the blueprint is two dimensional, the house has three dimensions, but it's also morphed according to its site. And it morphs from the document that you start with, um, depending on your, your time constraints and your financial constraints, that pieces of the house come off, others are added. You know, you can't physically do something on a particular piece of ground. And so the end product is always profoundly different from the the two-dimensional plan you started with. And that is my novel process. 
I am an absolute plotter. I am someone who needs an outline. I usually start at the end and go backwards. Um, and I liken it to say, you know, you get in a car and you're going to go on a road trip. It really helps to know what your final destination is. It doesn't matter if you're going to go to Ohio or Louisiana on the way when you leave New York, but it helps to know you're going to end up in LA and that gives you the trajectory of your trip. I think in plotting a book, um, it's important to have that arc. This is the moment I begin. This is the moment I end. What happens in the middle is to me, the creative process. And that tends to be hijacked by my characters, um, which doesn't happen in a newspaper article. So, you know, it was a really complex and rich and exciting immersion for me in writing in a way I had not anticipated when I started writing my first book. I found that the hours would pass effortlessly and um, I never felt drained. I, I felt invigorated. So it was a very different process than writing a senior thesis, for example, which I also had done in college. Um, it, it was a sustaining and, and, and empowering process rather than a draining one. And that made it a delight. So the risk rapidly receded um, as, a, as a motivating force in my life. Um, that recurs, of course, every time you go to sell the book, but that's a totally different process. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> yeah, it requires totally different skills, unfortunately. Yeah. But that's why we have agents. So, <laughs> how about the other side of the coin? You know, we, uh, in Phil and I work with a lot of athletes, and, you know, we talk about fear of, fear of failure, but then there's also fear of success, which is kind of fear of failure because it's, you know, expectations get so high. Can I live up to that and then, you know, fail at some point? But um, how, how have you dealt with uh, uh, fear of success or, 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 you know, higher expectations or I need to top the last book, those kind of challenges and, and, and fears and doubts and worries that uh, a lot of performers have? I don't think they really arise for me because I don't think I've ever been hugely successful. So I don't feel that pressure. Um, it has been a gift to be, you know, what's known as a mid-list author as I am. Um, because it gives me the flexibility to play with whatever I want. And that's why I've been given the opportunity to have two different pen names. I write as both Stephanie Barron, which is my middle and maiden name, and as Francine Matthews, which is my first and married name. Um, that's allowed me to reinvent myself frequently during the past, it's uh, 28 years now that I've been writing and publishing, um, I can do women's fiction as Stephanie Barron. I've done a long-running series about Jane Austen, the 14th novel just came out, and it's Jane in the Year Without a Summer. Um, and I've been writing that series for 26 years, but I also can write a contemporary series set on Nantucket as Francine Matthews, or I can write about Jack Kennedy in an espionage novel. I've written about Queen Victoria. I, I'm not pigeonholed. Um, and that flexibility and freedom has been really important to me. Um, I think if I were consigned to writing only the same thing year after year because I was successful and my publisher wanted that income stream, it would be a death knell to my creativity. Yeah, as you're balancing um, one-offs, you know, two long-running series, 
how do you divide your time between those um, mentally? How do you compartmentalize and kind of transition between multiple projects? You know, I don't write anything simultaneously. So each of my projects feels discrete to me and is usually preceded by a lengthy period of research. Um, I tend to write a lot of fiction about actual people who lived in time, in, in history. Um, I've written about Winston Churchill a bit. Uh, I wrote a book about his mother, Jenny Jerome Churchill, who was an American Gilded Age girl. Um, I end up spending a lot of time immersed in reading, which generally is what spurs my story ideas. Uh, I, I'll be reading about something that happens to interest me, like nuclear physics in Paris pre-World War II, and I'll suddenly have an idea for a book, which became The Alibi Club. Um, and it's usually about a fact that triggers a whole investigative process on my part. I hadn't known that the French had the plans for a nuclear bomb in 1939 and wanted to get it out of Paris before the Germans occupied the city. Once I found that fact, which I had never encountered, I was off on a treasure hunt, you know? And so uh, that became my world for that year. Um, then I'll say, okay, I have a contract for another Jane Austen novel. I'll go read, reread an Austen book, read the letters surrounding the period in her life that I know the book has to be set. Uh, I read the context of what was happening in the Napoleonic Wars at that time and in British government. And then I'm ready to, to formulate an idea for the Jane novel. And because I've been reading her fiction, I have her voice in my head that I can, can employ for those books. So they all are individual journeys. You know, I just turned in a Nantucket manuscript and was on the island uh, two months ago doing the physical research of, of walking through, you know, a, a, a national, a, a Nantucket Conservation Foundation property, figuring out where to put a body, you know. So they all have their different processes and um, they don't really overlap, except I suppose somewhere in my brain, but but not simultaneously. Yeah, I've definitely <laughs> done it with, uh, with nonfiction books, but when things are prescriptive more than descriptive, it's probably <laughs> a yep. little bit easier. Yes. Yeah. Talk, talk to us about the thrill of the chase with that treasure trove that you mentioned or that treasure hunt of you know, archives and letters and historical documents and source material and, and why that's so much fun. Oh, yeah. Well, I, to give you an example from a, a book that we were talking about earlier, Jack 1939, which is about Jack Kennedy uh, as a 22-year-old junior at Harvard um, during the, the sort of onset of World War II, uh, that book just came out of seeing a photograph. I, I was researching the Alibi Club, and I ran across a photograph of this kid, and he was incredibly skinny. Um, his face was all angles and cheekbones. He was looking up at something off camera above him. And he had this shitting grin on his face. <laughs> he was laughing out loud. Um, he was wearing clothes that he clearly had slept in. It was a rumpled sports coat, a collarless white t-shirt like Stanley Kowalski would wear, and a pair of very baggy white flannels that you might see on a cricket field. Um, and he was juggling oranges. He was juggling oranges. And I thought, wow, what a fantastic 
vivid image just leapt out of the frame and it was in black and white. And I looked at the caption and underneath it said, Jack Kennedy, 1937, Nuremberg. And I thought, what the hell was Jack Kennedy doing in Nuremberg in 1937? And why was he on a street corner busking oranges? You know, that's what it looked like. And I started to think about what was going on around him off the lens of the camera. That was Nazi Germany. It was the height of Nazi Germany. He was an American, he's a tourist, and he's cutting up on the streets of Nuremberg. So I started suddenly researching why he was there, what was going on that time period, found out he had put his convertible in the hold of the Queen Mary, had sailed to Europe with his best friend, his lifelong best friend, a guy named Lem Billings. Uh, and the three of them had bummed around Europe, often sleeping in that convertible for three months. And the person who took the picture was Lem. And most of the pictures from 1937 are taken by Lem. Uh, my, my dear lifelong friend, uh, Louis Baird, is writing a book um, called Jackie and Me. It's coming out in May, I think, which is about Lem Billings and Jackie. Um, and I can't wait to read that book. So at any rate, looking at that photograph launched me on a journey of figuring out who Jack Kennedy was at 2022 when he was not yet JFK. He was not frozen in amber in 1960 with that rigid presidential back brace posture. He was a reckless, happy-go-lucky kid. And what I learned was that he was so ill, he would tell people, I'm not going to make 30. And his goal was to be a foreign correspondent. He loved to roam around, observe, interview people. And that's what he did in 1939. He took a hiatus from college. As a junior in February, he sailed for Europe and spent the next six months traveling alone everywhere from London to Moscow and cities in between. Occupied Prague, which was closed to all Westerners. He wangled his way into by using George Kennan and his father, who was ambassador to the Port of St. James at the time, working the diplomatic strings at state as a 22-year-old upstart kid because he wanted to see the, what the Germans were doing in Prague. And um, I put, but I'm an unintelligence Franklin Roosevelt because Jack's Harvard advisor was a good friend of Franklin Roosevelt and a member of what was called his kitchen cabinet. So there was that connection between a sitting Democratic president who was handicapped and Jack Kennedy having a mentor in Roosevelt as a person who was constantly disabled by, by chronic illness. Um, and that sprang in part that, that, that sense of a relationship for me and of a surrogate father in, in FDR from one Democratic president to another sprang from a comment Jack made when he was campaigning for Congress, his first congressional campaign after World War II. He was on crutches because his back was so debilitated. Um, and he said, if FDR can be president in a wheelchair, I can campaign on crutches. And I thought, that's a lesson learned by example and by personal knowledge of pain. Um, 
So that that's just sort of a microcosm of how a book starts and how it progresses through research. And suddenly you have the framework for a story that you, you think is really compelling and that people haven't even heard of or known before. Yeah, I think that's the the delight of microcosm history, whether it be fictional or nonfiction. Um, one of my favorite books, uh, history books, is Five Days in London by John Lukacs that mm-hmm. was used largely as the basis of Gary Oldman's winning turn, Oscar winning turn as Churchill. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, he's he was just... Finest hour. Yeah. So that mm-hmm. was literally this five-day period, which you know was largely inspirational for, for my own um, Churchill book about how on earth... Churchill ended up at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri in 1946 in his Iron Curtain speech that he gave there. So, yeah, whether it's it's Wonderful. that the fiction treatment that, that you gave it, which was, you know, largely based on fact, and then you you added in the flourish of characterization, or it is something like Lucas's uh, book, or even Mornings on Horseback, which I believe is David McCullough's best book yeah. by quite a long shot. Um, obviously, he can do the magisterial Truman or the Johnstown Flood or whatever it is, but... Yeah, when he turned his uh, hand to to a little uh, slice of life, and that I think those, mm-hmm. those powers really came through. Are you a fan of microcosm history? As as non, I mean, do you read? Do you mostly read nonfiction, fiction, a bit of both? Um, I read a ton of nonfiction. Uh, I think because I was trained up as an historian academically, um, I, for example, love a book called Troublesome Young Men which is about the conservative oh, yeah. party. Let, I, I know, know Len Olson a little bit. We both uh, we were the youngest two speakers at a Churchill conference by quite a number of years in Toronto <laughs> oh, <wonderful. laughs> some years ago. And she's, uh, yeah, she's amazing. I've read every one of her books. You know, Citizens of London is phenomenal. Um, <clears throat> you just, you get that. What I would like to pinpoint, Phil, is that I think... Um, microcosm history focuses on individuals and their stories and how they endure events. Something like, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis would be a great example. Um, That personalization of history is critical to its impact. And that's what I try to capture in fiction when I write about historic figures. I am trying to use their lives to illustrate a broader theme. And that can be true in microcosm history that's nonfiction, but it can also vividly be true in storytelling that's that's fictional. And the difficult aspect of that is you have to somehow find a way into the person's character that is going to unlock that person as a fictional character for readers so that they don't feel they're just having a name paraded before them and they are having the associations with that name that everyone has from the accepted visual, mon- you know, narrative of their lives. So I didn't want people to read Jack, for instance, and see JFK in 1960. I wanted them to have a coming-of-age story about a young man trying to find his self-worth and trying to see himself as having a future and how that plays out in his individual journey. So that, yes, you learn something about Jack Kennedy, but you're learning about him as a human being, not as a political figure. And I think that's what I've tried to do all along with Jane Austen or with when I've written about Winston Churchill to the degree that I have. You know, I I find the way in. I wrote a book um, called Too Bad to Die about Ian Fleming. And Ian Fleming can be a very difficult character to, to manage because he 
was very abrasive and many people have a very strong reaction to the way he lived. Um, for me, finding my way into him was to look at his vulnerability. And I do that often. For Jack, his vulnerability was physical illness and mortality. And he lived with that on a daily basis and it shaped his whole personality. For Ian Fleming, for me, it was the loss of his father at age six in the trenches in World War I and how he took that and then went with it in his life. Um, so, you know, that's been an interesting process for me to try to um, negotiate the real and the fictional. And one of the questions I get frequently from people is, how do I know what's true and what's not in your book? You know, um, and I like to hope that it sends them back to the history so that if they're really trying to figure out what's real and what's not, they go read an actual, you know, historical narrative about the events that I'm playing with. Um, because then they learn something beyond what I've given them. That's fantastic. Um, do you, I'm fascinated by alter egos and, uh, a lot of the performers that I've worked with, they could be musicians, athletes, they, uh, um, the introverts really like that. They like the idea that, you know, I'm kind of a, maybe a shy introverted person. So I want this alter ego when I go on stage or, you know, go on the mm -hmm. field. Um, it is free. How is Francine Matthews different from Stephanie Barron? Is it a different writing style, you know, in terms of like the writing process, are there any differences? Do you feel like a different person, different personalities when you're writing under that pen name? The voices of my fiction are very different, but yeah. that's true. <clears throat> across the board. I don't think it's tied to an author name particularly, although I would say uh, that anecdotally, I don't have hard evidence of this. I think more men read my Francine Matthews books than read my Stephanie Barron ones. So there is a sort of gender divide there um, in that the, the Barron books tend to be less violent. They tend to be less gritty, uh, realistic, tied to events, they tend to be more uh, firmly rooted in female characters. Um, the Matthews books have more male characters uh, who are protagonists or hold their own with female protagonists. So that definitely is a different approach. And the Matthews books tend to be a bit more contemporary, although the World War II books may not feel that way to some um, but they're less historic than, say, the Jane Austens, which occur 150 years before World War II. Um, the common element, of course, is military history, which I've always found fascinating and loved and like to use. And I think that that's rooted in the whole fact of conflict. Uh, most novels, to my mind, turn on conflict, whether it's on a very personal scale or a macro one and um, the resolution of conflict to the best of our ability. So, you know, that's why espionage and murder mysteries are, are natural vehicles for human stories. Yeah, that's, that was a great question, Jim. I'm not sure I can follow it very well. Um, speaking of those, of those male characters, um, I, I really like the, the paternal figure of the comforting figure of Ralph Waldo, you know, the grandfather, of course, in, in, in the Mary stories, was that yes was that inspired by your own grandfather or an uncle or is he a composite in some way or is it just a, a figment what a wonderful question i don't think anyone has ever asked me that and everyone in my family knows the answer so that's really really perceptive of you phil 
Uh, I lost my dad when I was 14. Uh, I'm the youngest of six children, all women, <laughs> which is why I gravitate toward Austin, I think. And, you know, I first read Pride and Prejudice when I was 12, and it made immediate sense because it's about a mother marrying off her five daughters. Um, but I lost my dad at 14, and um, when I married my husband 34 years ago, his father is a phenomenal person, and he is still with us at 94. Um, he's a polymath, just a brilliant man, um, commanded a battalion in Vietnam, um, is passionate about everything from calculus to opera, a voracious reader, fantastic parent and grandparent to my children. And he became my second father in a very significant way. And um, I, I think that there's a lot of Mo Matthews in Ralph Waldo Folger. Yeah. Um, another thing you touched on earlier was the kind of interplay between your characters. And you mentioned, obviously, there is individualization there. But um, I love in the in the, the Nantucket series that there are kind of the wounds of the father, so to speak, that come to bear on Rafe, you know, where he's kind of estranged from his dad. And it also rips away part of his identity as a fisherman before he kind of refines it on Peter Mason's farm. Um mm -hmm. Where do you draw those kind of the more complex family dynamics from? Is that, again, from partly from real life experience and, and partly just ele elements of fictional design? Or is it does it depend on the character? And some of them are, are un, never speak. So in Rafe's father's case, he's just kind of the the specter at the yeah. feast, so to speak. He's off he's off camera, um, at least so far in the series. So. Um, yeah, how do you draw that complex interplay between familial characters and kind of the wounds that one generation can imprint on the next? Well, I think it's the fundamental problem of life that we are raised by other people. And so although we land on this planet with our own genetic uh, agenda, we are, are contextualized by the people that we grow up with. So families and family histories and parenting are hugely important, I think, to the development of characters. And um, I, I have certainly learned that in working with actual people, you know, looking at how Jenny Jerome and Randolph Churchill raised Winston um, and their personal relationships with him was an absolute primer on child rearing in the late 1890s in um, Britain, 1870s to 1890s. You know, and I got to read all of their letters uh, in the archives, the Churchill archives, among the three of them, and you just learn so much about the dynamic of what affects a, a personality that's in in protean growth, like Winston's. Um, the sense of failure that you have when your father doesn't value or approve or even see you, you know, was a, a huge lesson in his life. Um, and as a parent myself, I'm constantly reflecting back on the past 27 years of parenting I've had and how my sons who've emerged evidence both my failures and my strengths, you know. And so I think when I look at any character, I'm thinking about their history. Because you, you know, the, the character doesn't, may begin for the reader with his, his or her first line of dialogue or, or the, the omniscient observation of the person. But uh, the character carries within them if they are 
to be a credible human being, all of the complexity of the years that have led them to this point in a story you are sharing about them. And if you don't take that seriously, then they're, they're cardboard figures. Um, so, you know, to do anything that's going to have complexity, you have to start with a complex character. To me, a murder story or an espionage story, which is political inherently, um, has to have characters who bear the weight of the problems you've given them. So, you know, you and I, Phil and, and Jim, will never probably consciously make the decision to end another life. And we will not sit down and construct a method of doing that that will absolve us of guilt. For someone to be a perp in that sense, they have to be a complex and profound and credible character. Similarly with the victim. You know, why would someone end someone else's life? That person has to have provoked something in response in the world that caused the violence that created their end. So I think as soon as you know those aspects of character and, and how they collide between victim and, and killer, you suddenly have a world of complexity that is in itself going to create the novel. You know, you suddenly know a lot about their pasts, you know about their motivations, you know about what they're striving for to attain. And then you can kind of work backwards and say, well, what's this, what's the killer circle? What's the victim circle? What's the context that causes them to, to collide? And you, you're, you're world building, right? So, yeah, I do think a lot about parents and children and the influences we can't control that shape us before we're too young to even recognize them. Yeah, and even Jack, where um, he wasn't supposed to be president in his father's mind, the plan was always for his older brother to be president. So I found that fascinating how you drew that out in Jack 1939. It's a very photograph. I think I'm a visual learner. So can spark a whole train of thought in me. There's this classic photograph of Jack, Kick, and Joe, the three of them, walking into the Houses of Parliament on September 3rd, 1939, to hear... Nigel's uh, declaration of war against Germany. And they're dressed to the nines. They are all in the age range of 22 to 25. They are beautiful. They are privileged. They are wealthy. Jack is smiling. Kick looks worried to death. And Joe is sober looking, just somewhat somber. And I looked at that photograph and I thought, you know, he used to say, I'm not going to see 30. And yet by the end of this war, by the end of 1948, he was the only one of the eldest four children of the Kennedys who was functional. Joe was dead. Kick was dead. His sister, uh, Rosie, had been lobotomized in 1942 and was no longer a part of the family. And he was it. He was the only one of the four eldest siblings that he grew up with and adored. All four of them were very, very tight, who was still left alive. Um, and to then to, to contemplate that level of loss and the unexpectedness of it in his privileged family, um, and then to see how he had to reach down almost a generation to make Bobby his companion and sibling friend, and eventually Teddy, who was the youngest child and was six 
that day when he walked into the Houses of Parliament with his elder siblings was just an astonishing kind of realization to have. And it really sprang from that photograph of these young people who are beautiful, privileged, secure. It's not their war. Their friends are going to be in it, but they're going back to the U.S. And all of a sudden you look at it and you think nothing ever, nothing happened the way they anticipated. You know, that's, that's a compelling moment in survival and storytelling for me. You would have uh, made a really good counseling psychologist, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, you know, it's, I, I love talking about what's going on in the present, but you have to, you know, uh, you know, it's a lot of the work that I do and more of the counseling hat that I wear. I'm also a sports psychologist is bringing the past into the present. And, you know, so I'm interested in what's going on right now, but how does the past affect the present? Because the cure really is, is about exploring the past and how it gets enacted out today. Um, must, in, way, in ways that doesn't serve you. And I, yeah. I love how you, that, that just rings so true for you and your work and, well, and sure. how you look I, at this. My, my younger son was a Division One saber fencer and started at age five, um, went up through college and then quit as a junior because he'd had too many concussions. But um, he had a sports psychologist for a while. And I think one of the elements that must come up in your life constantly is how parental expectations drive influence and undermine student athletes you know just you see it play out in the olympics every day um but but it plays out on a much more intimate level on the soccer fields of america when the kids are seven you know it's just the the vicarious ambition of parents has to be a hugely destructive force in your work that's it yeah it's uh uh uh, one of the first sports psychologists in the baseball world, professional baseball world, was asked, uh, and this was years and years ago, uh, was asked, uh, uh, you know, what have you learned about working with, you know, major league baseball players? And he said, how many of them hate their dads? That was his first response. Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. so it is fascinating understanding parents. And and it's amazing that, you know, sometimes parents will, uh, you know, if, if, if their upbringing was too strict, they'll be too lenient. Um, mm -hmm. and then if they were too lenient, they'll be too strict. And, you know, it's, it's just fascinating, um, uh, getting into the background. And so, uh, it, it's fun thinking about that with these historical figures as well, obviously. It absolutely is. Yeah. yeah I think Jim, you told me one time that there was a, an M, a major league baseball player whose father would call him and berate him almost and want to break oh. down moment, but moment by moment, inning by inning, pitch by pitch. Is that right? Well, it, it, it's amazing. One uh, uh, pro baseball player, and this guy was in his 20, late 20s at the time and very successful. Uh, his agent reached out to me and said, hey, can you work with my client? You know, he could use some support, you know, in terms of confidence, concentration, composure, commitment, those things. But he needs more help dealing with his dad. And uh, so his dad would call him up after every game. Let's go through it. Why'd you throw this pitch? Why'd you throw that pitch? And he's like, dad, I, I don't, you know, I just pitched. I don't want to talk about it. Um, and so, uh, so I ran some interference there and, you know, we came up with a solution in terms of maybe once a week we have, you know, dad, son time to talk baseball and outside of that, we don't talk about it, but, uh, and they both could live with that because dad would do the sulking, you know, I don't, you know, you don't want to hear my opinion. And then, yes, I do dad. And then mom would get in the middle and say, he's just trying to, help. you know, he's just trying to help you. And so it was, it, it got very dramatic, but, uh, it, it had a happy yeah. You know, it's important to learn from that i think i had a son who was a pitcher my other son not the, the saber fencer and um 
he reached a point with pitching where neither I nor my husband could watch him throw a game. And that happened with my younger son with fencing. He did not want me in the room when he was competing. And his coach used to go up to him and say, you really should let your mother stay and watch this bout. And I would say to the coach, if I am interfering with his ability to perform, I should not be in the room. That's not my, that's not my need. You know, my hope for him is that he perform well because it's important to him, not because he's trying to please me. I am perfectly fine going to have lunch while he's competing and hearing about it when it's over. But I had to learn that in part by going through the process in the pitching world with my elder son, that if we showed up, he would stand in the field and he'd start waving us off, you know, mm -hmm. and we had to go out to the parking lot. We could not be in the stand. Um, and that's, you know, that's a human dynamic. Oh, big time. Uh, Dave Eucleson was uh, was the sports psychologist for a long for a long time at Penn State. That might have been the one that your son worked with. Uh, he's since retired, but yeah, no, uh, not this was not at Penn State. This was when he was a kid coming up. Oh, but I mean the, the fencer. That's what I mean. It was. Um, oh, he worked before he got was, before he went to Penn State. Yeah, okay. before he went to college. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of college, Princeton and Stanford, uh, uh, you know, not not uh, too bad there, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, some amazing schools. And uh, what, what was the difference between the two schools for you? And and uh, uh, we'd love to hear more about uh, Stanford. Uh, I mentioned off here, uh, Ken Kesey's kind of one of my all time favorite writers, and, and he studied at Stanford. Uh, so I'd love to hear your experience there. And uh, but, yeah, I'd love to hear about how you ended up at both schools. Well, you know, um, to be honest, Jim, Princeton was a far more profound and um, formative experience in my life. And I think that that is because it was liberating for me intellectually. Um, I had gone through Catholic schools that were primarily female um, in the run-up to college in the Washington, D.C. area. And um, I think when I got to college, I finally felt I was surrounded with a peer group that valued what I valued, uh, which was, it didn't have to be the same intellectual pursuits, but everybody was passionate about something in a way that I didn't find in my earlier educational years. There was a lot of apathy around learning, you know, when I was growing up. Um, and so that was just revelatory for me. Uh, that I that I could see around me people my age who valued what I valued. That was really affirming. And I I always tell people when they're looking at schools in general, it's not about the school's reputation. It's about the peer group and how your child or that you as a person fit into that peer group, whether it feels like a peer group that's sustaining, inspiring, and supportive um, for you as a person. And I think that's really important to because I, I know there are studies where people learn far more from their peers over time than they do actually from teachers or parents. So um, that's always been my focus. The, the main difference between Princeton and Stanford is that one is an undergraduate as, uh, institution and the other is a graduate institution primarily. So uh, I happened to, to be at the undergrad institution as an undergrad and at the graduate one as a graduate student. So I had to my mind, the best experience of each school. Um, 
Princeton's very small, so there's only 1,300 people in the class, and the graduate school's tiny. So the professors are actually really working with the individual students. So that, to me, was a, an extraordinary opportunity. Most Ivy League schools are so graduate school heavy that you don't get that individualized experience as an undergrad that I was privileged to have. Um, an example of that is, you know, the, the most profound influence on my writing at that time was uh, John McPhee, who was a New Yorker writer and uh, is still a New Yorker writer <laughs> at age, I think now 91. Yeah, 90. Uh, yeah. And he and I have stayed in touch my whole life. Um, one out of every two people who studied with John goes on to become a professional writer of some type. Um, he's adored, he's beloved. And I carry with me to this day things he taught me about my writing. And so that was that was the gift to me educationally. At Stanford, I was studying for a doctorate in history, which I did not complete, um, in part because I was focusing on an area of the world that I had come to late and didn't fully love, which was Latin America. I am natively more of a Europeanist and should have gone to grad school in probably European history, but didn't. Um, so I ended up leaving with a master's and not writing my dissertation, which is kind of amusing because I'm, you know, I'm 30 books in now, but I never wrote my dissertation. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, Stanford was just a very different place. I love, I'm passionate about Northern California. I loved writing for the newspaper while I was there. Um, and I met my husband there. And, you know, it's it, each of them was a, distinct phase of life. Thank you. Yeah, that brings up the, the topic of place. And um, we've talked to another writer in the past that, that brought up Robert Caro, obviously a great biographer, mm. and he talks a lot about time and place. And obviously um, the Nantucket series, as the name would suggest, is, is very evocative of that. Can you talk to us right. a little bit about the importance of place in your writing? Absolutely. Yeah, I think... Um, one of the touchstones for me, particularly in the Nantucket series, is uh, capturing the atmosphere of the island, um, and that has changed over 30 years. So it's been a it's been a journey for me. Uh, what happened with that series, which I think plays into time and place, Bill, is that I started it with my very first novel back in the 90s. I wrote four books in that series and then launched into other things and didn't continue it. And then about five years ago, uh, Soho Crime came to me and said, the rights are available. They were never eBooks. We'd like to acquire the rights, publish them again, and you know make them available digitally, which I did want. Uh, so I said, well, okay, but and, and then they said, we want another book in the series. We want you to continue the series. And I said, well, I can't do that because there's a 20-year hiatus. And that gives me a choice. I either pick up as though no time has passed and the series is permanently set in the 90s. Or I left characters who were in their mid-30s and I'm picking them up, and picking them up in their mid-50s. I think that's an abysmal way to, you know, proceed. Um, Plus, I said, if you leave the whole series in the 90s, you know, here we are about talking about time, Phil, it's a horrible period for, for uh, criminal investigation. There was no you know, DNA analysis. There was uh, no internet to speak of. There, so 
you know, when you write now a contemporary book, you're dealing with a whole different level of investigative tech. You know, you have the, the national database that's immediately accessible for fingerprint analysis. You used to have to go to the FBI, you know, to, to compare fingerprints. Now it's online. So everything has changed. Um, I had devices in the original books of, you know, a blackmail letter. Well, nobody writes a letter anymore. Nobody gets a letter anymore. It would be a text or an email and, you know, it'd be encrypted. So everything about the world that Mary Folger lived in in the 90s is obsolete. So I said to Soho, look, we can do this if I can revise all four of the first novels and bring them up to a sort of contemporaneous, a chronological present, and then I'll write book five. So I've just turned in book seven uh, last week. And that has been a fascinating journey for me as a writer because we never get to go back and revise ourselves. I mean, we just don't, most of us in, in the fiction world. And to read your first book when you are 25, 25 years out is to see of that, you know, notion of hours required for mastery. <laughs> because, you know, thankfully, my skills and my technique have progressed over that period of time. I am a better writer, I think. So I was able to edit myself and go back and say, God, this first book was such a first novel. And, and the prose is so purple and, you know, it needed to be tightened. And I cut I, the pruning I did on those four books was significant. And, and the tightening and the, this, the polishing of, of how I would write them now was a gift to be able to do that. And then to me, the series floats, you know, seamlessly into the, the next novel that was published, which was called Death on Nantucket. Um, uh, and then, you know, it's, it's been fun to work with the series ever since because it's, it's all coherent now, I think. Um, but to get to the question of place, it is absolutely critical to go to places that you want to write about. You think you can imagine them. You think you can get stuff from, you know, reading articles and online. What you lack is the spontaneity of, of events that you don't expect that occur to you um, and the sensory impact of place. So a book I wrote called The Secret Agent is set in Thailand and Vietnam. Um, and it's about Jim Thompson, who was a, CIA knock, non-official cover after um, World War II and during the Vietnam War. And he established the Thai silk industry um, for all intents and purposes and founded a company named Jim Thompson Silk, which was his cover operation for his intelligence activities. Um, so I was researching that book in 1999 and there was a massive typhoon that hit Asia. My husband and I were in Vietnam at the time we had just seen John McCain's cell at the Hanoi Hilton. We were having a whole war, uh, Vietnam War experience. And we got trapped in a city called Hue, which is right near Da Nang, um, for five days in the typhoon. And it was uh, an epic experience of Katrina-like proportions. And refugees were coming to our hotel, which had a generator, which was important, by sampan. 
Um, and we were being fed rice three meals a day by the hotel staff, which was also trapped. And we were eventually airlifted out in a C-130 by the Royal Thai Air Force. And these were all experiences I could not have invented or anticipated, but they found their way into the novel subsequently because they were such visceral experiences. You know, you're sitting on a C-130, you're strapped in horizontally, um, I mean, in parallel to the, the body of the fuselage, you know, you have the, the harness over you. There's no insulation in the plane. It's a troop transport. And you're seeing on the sides of the plane instructions in English. And you realize this plane dates from the Vietnam War. And we gave it to Thailand because they were our allies. And here we are in a troop transport being airlifted out of Vietnam. I could not invent that experience. And I wouldn't part with it for anything in the world. You know, but that's why you go to places because you can then evoke them so vividly in ways that are impossible otherwise. Yeah, what's that kind of compare and contrast like, um, either from a, a foreign land in this case or some of the the places you describe in Jack 1939, you know, Prague and these other capitals across Europe and even further afield versus that small town feel um, slash island feel of, of somewhere like Nantucket. Yeah. Um, you know, foreign locales have all the romance of the, of the strange. And what's interesting is that those are written about for me in the past. And the past is only accessible by the power of imagination. You can physically go to a city like Paris um, and research World War II. But what you see in Paris when you go is all these plaques celebrating August 1944, which is the moment that, that the French felt proud of themselves in that war. So if you're trying to actually research locations during the Nazi occupation that occurred for 50 months in Paris, you will not find plaques to those. You have to actually go to the historical accounts, locate the addresses, and figure out that the Hotel Lutece was the Gestapo headquarters and that in the basement they were torturing people. You know, you go by the Hotel Lutece now and it's valet parking. But, you know, so, so you, there's a limit to what you can visit. When I visit Jane Austen's England, I can stay in a Palladian villa outside of Bath that has a, a Humphrey Repton garden still intact. He was the landscaper that Jane mentions in Mansfield Park. But I arrive by car and I have running water, you know. So there's always this barrier to access when you're writing about the past. Um, when you're writing about a small town like Nantucket, what's fascinating is to see where the conflict lines lie. So I chose Nantucket originally as a place because, A, I wanted to live there mentally. And if you're going to write a book, you want you better want to live mentally in the place that you're forced to occupy for a year. Um, but secondly, because to me, it was the great American parallel to St. Mary's Mead, the classic British village in which murder occurs and everybody is an observer and a participant and um, understands the life of that intimate community and how conflict can, can rip it apart. Um, there's this Aristotelian sort of model of, of the murder village, which is that, you know, there's this perfect unity 
of community that's bound by love and then it is exploded by violence. And the role of the detective is to restore that sense of unity and community and love by the end of the book. And that's very much what governs cozy crime fiction, uh, which I think the, the Nantucket series falls into. It does have crime. It does have cops. So it's kind of a falls between two chairs, the cozy and the police procedural. But the element of the small town is vital to giving it that sense of community, which I wanted. It's not the mean streets of LA or New York, you know, um, I saw there the, the place as having inherent conflict in its very nature, i.e. everybody thinks they own Nantucket who loves the place. But you have a different sense of owning Nantucket if you are a cop who is seventh generation Islander, if you are working in the hospital, if you are teaching in the schools, if you are picking up the trash, if you are landscaping or you are building a home for someone else to buy. Then you do, if you are the people who fly in to Nantucket, which is increasingly the case for two weeks on their private jet with their private chef, live in their compound that has their guest house, their pool, and their caretaker's cottage, um, and then fly out to their next home. Uh, they have a sense of ownership of the island, but it's profoundly different from the people who actually make it function as a community. To me, that's an inherent conflict. And so that sets the basis for crime. And a small town like that is a microcosm of the human condition writ large. So, you know, it's been wonderful to spend my time there. But I first started going to Nantucket as a, I have three sisters who live on Cape Cod and we all grew up going to Cape Cod, but I always loved Nantucket and I ended up being a nanny there for a wealthy Washington DC family that owned a summer house on Orange Street and handed me their three-year-old for the summer. And um, they didn't really want to see her. So <laughs> I had a bike with a kid seat on the back and she and I rode all over the island every single day, just trying to get through the day of the entire summer, um, which meant I got to know the island like the back of my hand on a, on a almost pedestrian level, uh, which was really useful later in life. However, the island as it is now compared to the island as it was then, is profoundly different because of the infusion of money. It used to be a remote destination that people had to ferry to, and it was comprised of homes that were unwinterized and handed down through generations. And it was very family-based and family-oriented. Now it's a lot of New York money. It's um, got aspects of it that are similar to the Hamptons. You do see bumper stickers all over Nantucket that say, welcome to Nantucket, now go back to New York. Um, so there's this hostility there about that, uh, almost a sense of having their their community hijacked. Um, and I see that played out in the way the selectmen wrestle with a lot of the zoning and, and occupation laws that I follow in the local paper on a weekly basis. Um, and that's how I stay in touch with the community when I'm, you know, not able to, to visit. Um, so... Yeah, that's why the small town is kind of a, a microcosm of Prague, you know, <laughs> but but one I know more intimately. Yeah, I mean, even where you set it up, just the, the terminology, summer people, islanders, mm -hmm. and then even with Sconset, like Sconsetters, 
And then yep. obviously with Tuck and Nuck, like that, that's a whole other <laughs> kettle of fish, right? But so you draw those lines just in, in modes of speech, which is quite interesting in the way that's set up. Yeah. Well, you're British, so you know you can tell. I mean, a, a, a person who grew up in the UK can tell where someone's from as soon as they open their mouths. And um, yeah, I think that that tribalism is <laughs> evident whether you're on an island or, you know, in Manhattan. Yeah. Well, you're starting to see that in Colorado with the, <laughs> well, you've probably seen it for a long time with the natives, but there are some parallels almost, I feel like, to Evergreen now versus Evergreen probably when you lived here even. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's always true. I'm always struck. I, I call it tribalism because it is, but, you know, uh, I grew up on the East Coast and in Washington, I was an incomer as a kid and there were there was old Washingtonian, they called them the, the cave dwellers. Um, that's true in Denver. You know, there's the old cattle and oil families. And um, I wasn't born here. My kids were, so they can say that. But, you know, I've lived here 30 years, but I am still from somewhere else. And and my voice sounds like it. I'm told that all the time. I didn't think I ever, I never thought I had an accent, but apparently I do. And it's an East Coast one. So, <laughs> you know, we all learn these things. Yeah. Well, Jim, you've had the experience of, coming full circle with Eugene almost. What what do you think about that? Just how that's played out, you know, time and place in, in your own experience the last year, year and a half. Yeah, it's, I love it in terms of getting these uh, period rushes and, and, and place rushes, uh, you know, in terms of visiting places that have changed, like you mentioned over time. And um, my wife is from New Bedford originally. Uh, ah. So uh, when we go out there and, you know, Moby Dick and the whaling museum and the, uh, the Bethel, the Church Bethel, and and, yeah. and going to Nan. It, it's just you get these rush, this historic, these historical rushes that are just uh, so powerful. Um, it's almost like a little bit of time travel. Um, if you could kind of, there's still some echoes left from those time periods. Um, and, Absolutely, and, yeah. And, and and just being able to feel that is amazing. And then just being being back in Oregon, where you know I was raised, and um, it, it just. Uh, you just feel part of something so much bigger than yourself. And and I love how you're able to tap into that in your books. Well, I am, you know, you mentioned earlier introversion. I am an introvert. And I think one of the things that introverts and high analytics excel at is um, observing others and intuiting what their lives might be like. Um, actors do it by actually going into a role. Writers do it by creating one, you know, creating a, a, a character and inhabiting it for a while. And I know that I do that all the time. And that is, you know, an, ima an imaginative voyage for me, but it's a way of living more broadly than I do in my own life. Well, what's amazing is that uh, for most athletes that, you know, uh, uh, the ideal is to shift from left brain to right brain when it's time to perform. Uh, so you get more into rhythm and tempo and flow. Right. And, and, and it's more about the fundamentals and the brilliant basics, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, versus practice when it's learning, growing, judging, analyzing, critiquing, all that good stuff. Muscle memory. Um, exactly. So mm -hmm. how, how often are you in the flow when you're writing? Um, I, I know you bring such passion to this topic and, and to your craft, and, I'm, and that's a big uh, flow uh, uh, key, you know, that opens the, the door to, to, to really enjoying the writing process and getting the most out of it. But uh, a lot of athletes will tell us, you know, maybe 10, 15% of the time I'm in flow in a flow state when I'm performing. And then the rest of the time it's a mission, <laughs> you know, just trying to get 
you know, 100% out of my 80% or whatever I'm feeling that day. What, what's the writing process for you and how often are you in, in terms of right brain, left brain, and then how often you're in flow while you're writing? Well, I think writing, I'm always in my right brain. I think it's profoundly right-brained. Um, the plotting process is left-brained. And so they're very different stages for me in, in the construction of a novel. Um, I, I say this because I find... So I just finished a manuscript, right? Um, I wrote that book in about six weeks, and it was like taking dictation. I just I wrote the last 75 pages of the novel in a day which training, but it was coming from into my, and that is right brain. That is not left brain. <laughs> yeah. um, that is being in the flow for a very sustained period of time. And that does not always happen to me. Some books feel like I'm taking dictation. Other books are conscious acts of construction. And it has to do in part, I think with um, the complexity of the choreography. So the book I just wrote is set over a long weekend, stroll weekend on Nantucket, which is the Christmas stroll. It's the kickoff to their holiday season. Uh, Santa arrives by Coast Guard Cutter. There's a huge parade. It's a really wonderful time on the island. So it was a three-day book, maybe four. When I write a book like That Churchill Woman, which follows a woman's life for 20 years, the structuring of the book is much more conscious. And you're going backwards and forwards in time. And you're managing complex historic events and a cast of characters that's legion um, over the period of her life from zero to 40. So that is a much more arduous process. And the flow periods are episodic. You know, I probably took four years to write that book. And I wrote it for, I wrote four different manuscripts starting at different points, um, ending at different points, figuring out how to frame her story. And I eventually framed it, came to the point of framing it in terms of the four most important men in her life, which were her father, her husband, her son, and her lover. And that gave me the framework for Jenny. Um, but, you know, that was a totally different process than death on a, on a winter stroll. So. Yeah. I love that. It feels like taking dictation though, when you're in, when you're in the zone and, and yep. yeah, it's uh, it's, it's, it's like in, in music, it's like the performance is almost giving you, you're not giving the performance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did yeah. you have any inkling that that was just going to be a six week book? <laughs> Did you have like this building sense of yeah. just create the the uh the jug getting filled so to speak before you were able to empty it so quickly yes i also had a deadline that was very hard but um i, I had parameters so i had this very hard deadline of february 1st for production reasons which have to do with the supply chain and everything else going on in publishing right now but i also knew so this book was slated to be written last year and uh because of the pandemic Christmas Stroll in Nantucket was canceled in 2020. So I had to wait for 2021 because I was not going to write the book without going to Stroll. Time and place again, uh, Phil. So I Stroll was December 2nd. So I had to write the book between December 6th and February 1st with the holidays in the middle. 
<laughs> and my kids home. So um, that just dictated the process. But because I had thought of the book, outlined it, had it in my head for a year due to the pandemic, I think that's why it just came right out. Yeah. Um, you mentioned time and place, uh, and we kind of dived into that a little bit in terms of characterization, this kind of thing is setting. Is time and place important in your own routine in terms of where you write, when you write, the yeah. factors? You know, Jim mentioned flow keys or flow triggers that you put in place, certain drinks, certain meals, certain snacks, certain on again, off again, hard cut off, keep going until you fall face down on the desk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How does that play into your actual writing routine? Yeah, well, you're looking at my writing room right now on the Zoom call, which I realize will probably get out of, edited out of your podcast. But um, this is my office, and um, it's open. So my husband works at home, and because of the pandemic, he has a closed office, which is good. Um, but we're both working at opposite ends of the house. And um, I am not a morning person, profoundly not a morning person. Us too. Yeah, so I don't get. I don't, I actually, okay. <laughs> this is embarrassing. You have to go to the cake. downy flake for some oat cake and coffee first, right? Yes. Yes. I, um, I work in bed from eight to 10. Churchill. And then I get up, shower, start my day really at my desk around 1130 or 12. I'll work until five, break for dinner and I'm done. And I fundamentally believe that there really are only, <sighs> four good hours of work in each of us every day. And we are forced by convention and expectation to show up for eight to 10. But the reality is we have four or five good hours <laughs> and the rest is just pretending, suggesting, projecting that we're working. But, you know, I, I think the pandemic has revealed that to all of us, that people working at home are far more focused. They get their work done. They're doing it in connection with others at a fixed time and the rest of the day is theirs. And that has been profoundly liberating for, for America. And I think it'll be really interesting to see if we can ever go back because I've been structuring my life like the pandemic has structured it for everybody for the past 30 years. And I think it's the only same way to live. You know, it's an integrated life where work is part of your day, but does not dominate your day necessarily. And, you know, you can get up and go do a load of laundry and you come back and you do a zoom call. And, you know, I think the whole world is going this way. So um, yeah, I do have, I, I am a middle of the day person. I don't work at night. I don't work in the morning on my actual book. And, um, I drink a lot of tea. <laughs> very English of you. Uh, very English of you. Yeah. Well, I'm an Irish Catholic from an Irish Catholic <laughs> family. So tea was what we were given at every crisis and every illness. And, you know, funerals are punctuated by massive constant tea brewing. And that's just what you <laughs> Yeah, so um, did, did that routine even hold for that epic kind of run through those last 75 pages in a, in a day no. or a day and a bit? Or did you just literally write until it was done and you just bang, done? I wrote later in the day. The mornings held because I'm such a creature of habit at this point that I, I really can't write earlier than 10 a.m. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> a friend of ours um, has a little place... Uh, in Scotland, and this is the friend that lives pretty close to you in Cherry Creek, actually, Brett, and he once ran into an old Scotsman before he had the place and was staying at a little inn nearby St. Andrews, and uh, 
the old mm-hmm. guy said something like, you know, I don't understand this uh, this fascination with the early thing. You know, nothing mm-hmm. to my mind, nothing good happens before about 10 in the morning. <laughs> it doesn't. Absolutely doesn't. And I, I like I, that. You know, that. That was validating for Jim and I because we're the same way. I mean, just admin or, you know scheduling calls and things like that in the morning generally now there are of course exceptions but uh yeah we definitely feel you on that one right jim absolutely well i love too that you you have a you know i love the saying sameness is greatness in terms of routines and you know what works for you you know what doesn't work for you but you leave a little room for magic kind of like what phil was just you know did, yeah. did you just you know work a little bit later when you you know when it was when it made most sense but um uh I, yeah i i love that and, and then also the volume too, paradoxically, that's why probably a good reason why you're so prolific is that you manage your, the volume well in terms of, uh, you know, not burning out, staying fresh, staying passionate about your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think too many of us tend to feel like more is better. Um, what, as, as a novice writer, uh, what worked for me is 20 minutes on, five minutes off, 20 minutes on, five minutes off do that. And then, you know, no multitasking because I get multi-mediocre when I, when I multitask. So there's no multitasking, just boom, 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 off, boom, boom, boom. And then, um, and then I leave it. And uh, I don't know how, yeah. So, but that takes a lot of discipline until it becomes a habit. But I think most of us feel like if I did that, I wouldn't be as productive. You'll be more productive. And like you said, I think you were, yeah, go ahead. I think you touched on something important that we shouldn't ignore, which is that I've been under contract for 30 years. So I have, well, 28. So I have an expectation on the other end of my writing. I think what can be very challenging for novice writers, or as they like to say now, pre-published writers, is that um, (laughs) there's no one expecting your work. And in fact, most of the people around you don't take it seriously. They see it as a pipe dream, as something you're playing with, as something you're never going to finish, as something that is too impossible to achieve, actual publications. So they denigrate it. And they they may not do it intentionally or even from malicious motives, but they'll say, oh, you don't have to write today. Come hike. Or, you know, what do you mean you're going to write? Let's go out. Or, you know, but I set aside today to do this. It's about me. Um, and so it's very hard for novice writers who are unpublished or have, have no contract to actually get that first book written because everything else takes precedence. And so I think it's critical for new writers to honor the commitment to themselves and to the realization of what they want by sitting down and doing it, even though it's not your job, it's not your actual job. It will not become your job until you start treating it as a job. And so, yeah, you do have to acquire that habit, but part of it is a mental transition to saying, this is real. I am pursuing it. And by pursuing it, I will realize it. And so that shifts the whole uh, tenor of the work from hobby to serious pursuit. And I think that um, until that happens, everything else doesn't. Yeah. I think a big part of that too is, is, is about, you know, are your values, you know, uh, writing is a value for you. Um, 
uh, versus ne necessarily just a goal. Uh, goal is somewhere way out there in the future that I that may or may not ever you know I may or may not ever reach. Whereas a value is in the present. This I, I love to write. I love to create. I love to learn. Getting in touch with those values, I think, is important too. Sure, but it's also practical in that I'm yeah. a woman and I had kids. Yes. So when yes. you say I'm very good at structuring my time, part of why my habit is my habit is because I wrote when my kids were in school. So my my writing day was bounded by dropping them off and picking them up. And before I dropped off and after I picked up, I was a parent. I was not a writer. And that you know, is a practical structure that dictated how I write and got my work done. And I think women, anyone, male or female, who works at home and deals with children, particularly in the past year and a half, has been struggling with that structure and dynamic. How do you play multiple roles simultaneously in the same space? And then what takes precedence? So it's not an easy, straightforward, oh, this is my value. Sure, I value writing, but I also value parenting. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and so it. I don't want my writing to suck because I'm parenting, but I don't want my children to be unhappy because I'm not present, you know? And that dynamic is really pressuring for everybody right now. Yeah. My my wife is really good at that in terms of she's a research psychologist and, and she's either on or off. She's either working or, you know, she's she's being a mother or wife or, mm -hmm. you know, or going for a run and not thinking about anything. Uh, some athletes that Phil and I have talked with, they have this beautiful obsession where they, they even when they're watching a movie or hanging out, they, they're just in the back of their mind, they're just thinking about their craft. And so it, it never turns off. So it, but, but I agree with you. It's, you know, in parenting, you know, when you're with your kids, you got to be with your kids. So that's, uh, I think that's important. And then it frees you up when they're at school, knowing that they're in good hands, hopefully <laughs> and learning some good things that you can put your full attention on the task at hand. Yeah. It's compartmentalizing. Yeah. You know, which is easier when you have multiple venues to compartment in. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's part of the stress for people now is that Great everything's point. happening in the same room. Um, so, no, I don't think I'm terribly good at blocking out uh, distractions because I think that's the, the tale of modern life. But I do find that I have a hyper focus when I'm writing, which I had as a child as a reader. And I'm sure there are people who are listening who have had that experience. I used to read so profoundly engrossed in, in the fictional world that people could walk into a room and I wouldn't notice and they could speak to me and I wouldn't answer. And uh, there are times when that happens as I'm writing now. So I, I just think that that's how my mind works. Uh, Tiger Woods was asked one time how he was able to focus with, you know, just all the attention when he's on the golf course and the cameras in his face and people mm -hmm. shouting and screaming. And he said, it's like when you're reading a really good book, everything else kind of disappears. And so even if the TV's on, you kind of know it's on, you know, it's there, but you're so engaged in the book that you don't really pay much attention to anything else. So uh, that's, that's his hyper-focus. You know, I've actually had that thought about his son because mm. I, I watch him and I think, He's 12 years old and he is able to block all this out. That's got to be partly genetic. Yes. And it's obviously clearly experiential, but to manage that at a young age is, is kind of profound, I think. Yeah. And it's fascinating to watch. It, it's really fascinating. Uh, fascinating. Tiger 
you know, shares a little bit about what he tells his son. And he'll say things like, you know, to his son, like it, it, when we're out here and everyone's watching us, we're, it's just the two of us, just like back at home. And the shots that we're playing are the same shots, whether there's no eyeballs on us or a million eyeballs on us. And it's, so it's really fascinating listening to him teach his son about his own mental game. Yeah, it does give you a window. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To hear him talk about it, how he managed it all those years. But, you know, it's one thing to say that, and it's another to actually live it. Yeah. Easier said than done, um, mm -hmm. but but fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. So. Um, just to rewind to something you mentioned earlier, kind of in passing, that John McPhee was a great mentor. I mean, that's going to be pretty incredible for any writer or creator listening. What's a lasting lesson that, that John was able to impart on you that you've applied either to, to your writing or life or both? There were two that I think I find I carry constantly. Uh, one is that he uh, taught us that a story is really a circle. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you can then circle back to the beginning. And that the writer chooses at what point in that circle to begin the story and circle back through the ending to the beginning. And he, that that's not a clear way of putting it, but that you choose the frame. If you think about video editing, you know, you can, you can advance the shot to a millisecond and then cut it off at a millisecond and you're framing the image. That's storytelling in a few words. Stories don't begin with someone getting up in the morning necessarily. They may begin with him hitting the windshield of a car. And then you circle back to how he got to that moment of impact. Um, but you make that conscious structural decision about your story as much as you do that it's plotting and it's characterization. Um, that there is a frame and you are setting that frame. And that... Um, Focus on structure is something that a lot of writers don't even think about. They're much more driven by plot and character, and they don't think about how you're building the book. So he really taught me that. And he, you know, that's not just one structural example. There are, there are others. Um, he also <laughs> is a precise wordsmith. So when we would write a piece for him, and there were, you know, 10 people in this class, maybe. Uh, and you'd submit to him every week. And it was always on one aspect that he was trying to instill, whether it be structure or uh, something he called the set piece, which I also use all the time, but I'll, I'll, I'll go into that more fully in a minute. Um, he would sit down with us in the review process, and he would have gone through the what we'd handed him absolutely word by word. And he would say, why did you choose, he'd have a box around a particular word, why did you choose this word and not another word? And so he's made me very careful through the years in my choice of words. I will often, I edit myself as I'm writing um, on a second by second basis. So I'll write a sentence and then I'll look at it and I'll go back and I'll change a word because I'll think there's a much better word than that banal, reflexive word that conveys more complexity here you know so that kind of precision is something i think he imparted and i i try to carry forward um and then the set piece i use all the time which i think is a 
really useful for somebody who's incorporating fact in fiction, as I do so often uh, in writing about real historical figures. So a set piece is where you are you are going along in your narrative and you mention something like flint napping. And you suddenly, for a paragraph, describe what it is, where it came from, who's known for it. You don't want a data dump, but it gives you a minute to pause in your narrative about something else and delve into a subject and polish it and offer it up. It can be the nature of loons crying. And, you know, it's what he does in all of his books where he'll focus on oranges or he'll focus on um, container shipping or, you know, but. But there's a moment where you get this highly polished nugget of information about something that is not necessarily germane to the story, but adds so much to the texture and depth of the writing. So set pieces are something that I find you end up researching independently from the rest of the book. You're just focusing on it. And then you're introducing it and enjoying it and hoping the reader enjoys it and that your editor doesn't cut it out. And uh, and then you move on with your narrative. Um, that's that was always very useful for me. That's oh, that's very useful for anyone listening. Um, just one final question, maybe before we let you get on with your day. Um, you mentioned earlier that somebody who has maybe talked about a long time, oh, I've got this novel I'm working on, and then eventually maybe people, family and friends start asking them about it, whether it's a novel or any piece of creative art. Um, is there anything, any other advice you would give to them from just thinking about it, maybe scribbling an idea in a notebook about it every, <laughs> you know, whenever such things pop into their head to actually committing and doing the thing? Well, I think it's important to set aside time every day. You know, people do that for exercise. Um, and it doesn't have to be you have to write 10 pages today. You know, that's not the point. If you wrote a single page a day, for a year, you would have a book. And a single page is about 200 words. You know, we can all write 200 words a day if it matters to us. And if you want to get a project done, that's all you have to do. And it's, you know, true that it's not all you have to do. You have to go back and you have to polish those 200 words and you have to make them coherent from day to day. But, as a, you know, it's like saying to people, exercise 10 minutes a day, take a walk. It's better than sitting in a chair all day. Um, it's the incremental small changes that build towards something larger and towards saying, well, you know, I'm sitting in my chair from noon to five today because I have to get 10 pages done. But, you know, it's, it's um, always important to start, but to commit to the continuity of it, I think. Um, so that's really the fundamental Fantastic. Well, this has been a, a gold mine um, as us is trying to write um, <laughs> and talking to somebody who's written not just as many books as you have, but as well as you have and as wide ranging as the as the topics and the subjects have been. So, yeah, it's been a real gift. So thank you so much for uh, for, for your thoughtfulness and, and your insight that you've shared with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. You guys are great conversationalists. So none of us get to have conversations enough anymore. So it was my treat. Thanks so much. That's kind of you to say. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at GoldMedalMind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.